Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I'm Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. We believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the letter to the Romans, and today's episode is Romans chapter 2, The Sin of Self-Righteousness. Now, before we get started, I do want to say that and remind the audience that I am studying this in real time with all of you guys. That means I am literally on the same um, time schedule. I'm studying this, you know, this week. I've studied chapter two. So I have a little correction to make. Last week, I had mentioned that um, there was a pastor in a podcast that I really admire his work and, and respect his work, and he had... Um, explained that this letter was really written to three different types of people, the the new Ju- um, Gentiles that were coming right out of paganism, um, more rooted Gentiles, and then Jewish um, followers. Um, I believe that chapter two, I misspoke or misunderstood what he was saying or just disagree with him. I don't know which it was, but chapter two, I believe, is written, written to the Jewish community, not a split between rooted Gentiles and Jewish believers. So going into this, we're going to be talking about some things, but we have to keep on the forefront of our mind that the problem in this Roman church was that there were a Jewish community and a Gentile community who have very different backgrounds and very different worldviews that are all coming under the banner of followers of Christ. And they're arguing with one another. And there are some, there's some sin, some pretty, um, serious outward sin in the Gentile camp. And then there's some pretty serious um, hidden sin in the Jewish camp, sins of the heart. And Paul doesn't go in and say, okay, this group is wrong and this group is right and y'all need to listen to them and y'all need to um, you know, do anything. No, he goes in and addresses both of them in where they're at and the corrections that they need to make instead of saying, oh yeah, Jewish guys, y'all are right. Gentile church, y'all need to listen to them. He just goes and addresses the sin among all the people. And so that's where we're going today. He's, he's, he's now, he was addressing the Gentile audience. Now he's turning to the Jewish believers and he set, starts off and says, any of you who judge is without excuse. When you judge one another, you condemn yourself since, the, your ju- since you, the judge, do the same thing. So what he's saying is that when we judge, we point to a standard outside of ourselves. We point to a moral code that is completely outside of ourselves. And that standard is what we will be judged by as well. And so in order to understand this fully, we really have to go back to uh, Matthew and we have to look at some teachings, a very, very powerful sermon that Jesus taught the, the, the people of Israel is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to start this morning in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is addressing a a Jewish audience and he says, don't judge others. Whatever measure you use, you will be judged by that same measure. So this is what Paul is communicating. He's just repeating the teachings of Jesus. In verse three of Matthew seven, he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? 
Now, this reminds me of that saying that if you point to someone with one finger, your index finger, you've got three fingers pointing back to you. He is trying to make a point here by saying, hey, that's a speck, but the same sin that you're pointing to them, that's a log in your own eye. And he calls them hypocrites. Now, for those of you that have been with me for a long time, you know that hypocrite was a Greek word for an actor performing on a stage. So if you went, you go to a Broadway show and you were Greek, you would look at those actors and say, oh, those are hypocrites. They are people pretending to be someone else. And he is calling these Jewish people that look at the Gentiles and say, look at this sin, look how disgusting. He's saying, you're a hypocrite. You're just pretending to be a certain way when you have this log in your own eye. But this is interesting to me because we have to understand scripture as a whole. So many people will stop here and say, look, Jesus says, don't judge. You can't tell me what to do. You can't judge my life. And this is what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount in Roman, I mean, Matthew 7. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he's not saying not to address these things. In fact, Paul is addressing them. Is Paul judging all these people? No. So we have to look at the heart of this. What is he really communicating? What he's communicating, well, let me let me say this. That Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So we have to use the text to show other people how to live, how to, that's teaching them, rebuking them, correcting them, and training them. Paul's letters, including this one to the Romans, was full of addressing sinful behavior. So that isn't judging. So we have to look more closely. What is judging? And what I believe he's communicating, it's the heart behind the correction. If you are looking at someone's sin with disgust and elevating yourself in your own eyes, that's ugly. That is self-righteousness and that is sin. If we see something that needs to be corrected in someone else as a leader, as a um, as for somebody further down on our, our Christian journey, or just as a peer in our Christian faith, what we first need to do is open ourself to the Holy Spirit and say, ooh, Holy Spirit, I see this in my friend's life. And I do want to bring it to attention. I want to bring it to the light for her sake or his sake so that he can get back on the path, the safe path, the path that leads to eternal life, not the path that leads to destruction. But before I address that, Lord, show me areas in my life where I have the same sin and let's root it out. And so that is what he is saying, that these Jewish people need to examine their own hearts for these same sin. God sees hidden sins too. For the Gentiles, it was very obvious because it was out in the open what their sins were. But God looks at these hidden sins. These are the tricky ones that we're not even always aware of or in our own life. God looks at the heart. We're going to take another look at the Sermon on the Mount, this time in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus came in and he said, hey, you know, the Ten Commandments says don't murder. But I tell you, if you're angry, angry, if you're angry with a brother, you're subject to the same judgment. If you have anger in your heart, that is still murder. He goes on to say, it's been said, don't commit adultery. But if you're lusting in your heart, 
He ends up going further through this series and saying, don't divorce for silly, petty reasons. Don't break oaths. But what you should do is turn the other cheek, go the extra mile and love your enemy. He even says the Gentiles live to the standard, the basic standard of not murdering, not committing adultery and these type of things. But Jesus was calling his followers to an even higher standing. We must check our own lives and rid it of sin before we can ever lead God and instruct others. But we can't let that, that, that fear of, oh, I don't even have my life together, so how could I possibly lead others? We can't let fear set in. What we have to do is examine ourselves, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal, and then repent, which means to turn away. And the Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So back into Romans, sometimes we practice these same sins that we see in other people, but they might not manifest themselves in the same way, but we're still going to be judged by them. But we tend to call them something else. We soften what they really are in our own lives. For example, what we can point to somebody else and say, well, they lie. Well, we just had to stretch the truth a little bit for, and then we have our reasons. Or maybe we see gossip in somebody else's life, but for us, we need to inform someone so they can pray with us. So we tend to lighten what it is and call it something else because we truly don't want to look at the sin in our own lives. So moving to on a little bit to um, verse five, Paul writes, because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. So we're going to unpack some words in this verse. First of all, he says, because of your hardness. A hard heart is a heart full of pride. The Jewish people had a word in their vocabulary called halakha, and it means to walk. It's the very essence of the Christian faith. And it was even of the Jewish faith that your walk is going to reflect how you believe. So those people with a soft heart walk according to God's way, regardless of what culture dictates. Those with a hard heart are those that walk their own path. And then he goes on to say the hardness and unrepentant heart. Well, a repentant heart is willing to turn away from your own path and start walking on God's path. And if we don't do this, if we don't cultivate a soft heart, then what we are doing is we are storing up wrath on this day of judgment. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, my Bible that I study from, said that the storing up of wrath is a picture of a dam, our debt accumulates as we continue to reject God's grace. And at the day of judgment, that dam will break and all of the consequences of our sins will be poured out. The day of wrath is coming. If you want to hear or learn more about it, look at Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. I don't fully understand it all, but for a parent, and I'm talking about God here, willing to give up his child to be brutally sacrificed to save me, that day of wrath must be something horrific. And we want to cultivate soft hearts. We want to realize that we are sinners in need of a savior. And we want to continue to allow God to shape and mold us, examine our lives and remove sin. He goes on verses six through 11 
and writes in a, um, a, a, a structure that is common in Greek writing called a chiasm. And it's a pattern here where there's a thought, which would be labeled A, and then you have two thoughts after that, which would be labeled B, and then you return to your original thought labeled A. It's a pattern. In this, this is a longer chiasm because it's made up of six verses. So the structure would be A, B, C, and then C, B, A. So the middle two verses are going to go together. If this confuses you, just tuck it away because you'll hear this again and it's taken me some time to really understand it and unpack it but if we if we point it out in scripture every time we see it then we'll start learning okay so chapter i mean verse 6 says he will repay each according to his works so works is something important and we're going to see this coming up again and again through the rest of this chapter we will get repaid according to our works for good works and bad works so verse seven says, eternal life to those who persist on, in my words, staying on the path of righteousness, staying on God's path, um, but wrath and indignation for those who choose to walk their own path, doing things that are right in their own eyes. And then the next verse is still a C, affliction and distress for every human who does evil, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So if you do your own, if you walk your own path, you're going to get affliction and distress. And notice here that he uses the same pattern that it's first to the Jew. And I love that one of the commentaries I read said, the bad news is just as universal as the good news. The good news is first for the Jew and then the Gentile, but the bad news of wrath is going to be first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And then we go into verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who walks the path of righteousness. And then 11, there is no favoritism with God. He doesn't care if you're Jew or Gentile, if you have lived by the Ten Commandments, or if you are living by an intrinsic moral code that God has placed in you. There's no favoritism. There will be a day of wrath. Verse 12 says, to all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. He's talking to the Gentile people. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So in other words, Gentiles, they suppress the truth because what they know of him is from his works and his creation. And the Jews had the covenant. And if they are not living by this covenant, by the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses, then they are also suppressing the truth. So whether you got it again from creation and this intrinsic um, thing that God placed in us, or because you were blessed by having this moral code given by the angels to Moses, it doesn't matter. We've all, we are all guilty of it. He goes on to say that all who sin against the law, whether the Jewish law or the Gentile moral code, will fall guilty in a court of law. That's what he's saying. This is the gospel. This is what the gospel is communicating, that we are all, every single one of us, in need of a Savior. And our job is to constantly be reflecting, to put our lives up against Scripture, and to make adjustments. And how we do that is through confession and repentance. Repentance is turning away from our ways and getting back on the path of God's ways. Verse 13 it's the doers who will be declared righteous. Now, this is where works come in again. It's the doers, not just the hearers. Faith without works is dead, but we do have to have this balance because human nature is to be 
an extremist. We're going to go from one extreme to the other where these some of these pagan Gentiles coming in, they are still living according to traditions and customs in the Greek culture. So they might be going to the temple and participating in the sexual acts for Aphrodite, but then they come to the Jewish synagogue and want to worship Jesus too. And he's saying, no, there needs to be an action that is attached to your faith, that you need to be doing things. You need to be making changes. And um, these works that are produced from a Christian walk, while they do not save us, they are evidence of a truly saved and transformed heart. So while faith without works is dead, it's also not works that save us. Um, I believe it is the apostle Paul that says it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. But the, the works are so important because they are an evident they, they are outward evidence of a changed heart and a transformed heart. Verse 14 through 16, I am going to read aloud, and I am going to need to find it. Let's see. It says that, So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves even though they did not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciousness confirmed this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse or excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. Dr. Constable, in his notes, pointed this out, and I felt like it was worth reading talking about this day of judgment. He will judge righteously in terms of reality, not just appearance. Remember the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, were masters at looking on the outside like they have nailed the law. But God is going to be looking at reality in the heart. Secondly, he will judge people because of their deeds, what they actually both do covertly and overtly. I've heard many times people in groups say things like, oh, well, and maybe they messed up something, but they're excusing it because they say, well, God knows my heart. Well, you're going to be judged on what you did with the word of God on your works. Moreover, he will judge impartially not because of how much or how little privilege they enjoyed, but how they responded to the truth that they had. This is something that Paul's communicating, that these Gentiles, their responsibility is to react to the truth that they do have, even though that truth wasn't in the form of the Ten Commandments in this big moral code that the Jewish people have lived by for hundreds of years. Paul is showing that these Gentiles don't have Torah, but that once submitted to Christ, they are naturally living out Torah. Why? Well, Jeremiah, the prophet, in <clears throat> chapter 31, said, prophesied that in this new covenant through Jesus, God would put his Torah in their inward parts and write it on their heart. The Holy Spirit brings Torah to life for all of us. Therefore, the Gentiles are not at a disadvantage because the Holy Spirit is in play right now. So what we need to take away from this is, are you being transformed? Can you look back on your life and see growth and see how you are living things out differently? Do you see constant signs of growth? Are old things that used to be important to you just something that you are not participating in anymore? Now, in 
verses 17, it's talking about Jewish violation of the law. And it says, now you call yourself a Jew and rest on the law, boast in God, know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. And if you are convicted, I'm sorry, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the full expression of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? He's saying, if if God has ordained y'all to be a light to the Gentiles and to teach and instruct them because you had the law from the beginning of time, you've got to examine your own lives first. You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You must. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is a powerful statement. This is a powerful statement. In the Jewish New Testament commentary, I felt like shed some light on it. It said, Paul's own experience as a very zealous Pharisee knows that a Jew can waste his advantage and misuse his Jewish status to justify boastfulness and hypocrisy. The point that they were chosen and given the law was not something that they were ever supposed to boast in and feel like they were superior to other people. And because of this, this is far from being a light to Gentiles. It's plunging them into further darkness, causing their hearts to harden. Immediately when I read that and wrote that in my notes, I put, Lord, I never want to be this person. I never want to live my life in such a way that it makes people see a haughty and a boastful spirit and someone who thinks that they are better than others because I have made different moral choices. Because what that does is turn people off. It's the goodness and kindness of God that leads to the repentance. It's the good news about Christ. We are all sinners. And I think when people can see that modeled within us, that we can humble ourselves and repent before others, especially your children. We have to model this. We have to model when we mess up and fall short so that they can see what a repentant heart looks like and does. In conclusion, he talks about circumcision. The Jewish people had to be circumcised, and this was a sign and seal of the covenant God made with Israel through Abraham. Through time, though, it became a badge of Jewish identity and eventually was thought to guarantee salvation. What circumcision was supposed to be was an outward expression or picture that your heart was circumcised, that your heart was torn. A circumcised heart is a pure heart separated unto God. It was to show that you love God fully inside and out, and you do that by loving him and his word and obeying it and loving other people and treating them with dignity and meeting their needs. God has always wanted heart connection with us. He doesn't want just obedience out of a set of rules that we were supposed to check boxes. He wants us to be so connected with him that we just naturally live out his rules. Mm. 
That is what we are doing here in Bible Nerds. We are going through God's word verse by verse, and we are tackling hard things to understand because it was written by people 2,000, 3,000 years ago, halfway across the world in a completely different culture. So together, we are tackling these verses. We are drawing out the intent of them. We are applying them to our lives. And the hope and the desire is that we have natural transformed hearts, that we aren't looking at what scriptures says and going, check, check, check. Oh, good. I've aced this. No, that we are connecting with God. We are getting to know him as a savior, as a friend, as a father, God, our father. It's a heart connection, a love relationship. And because of time spent in his presence, we begin to look more and more like him. And then these things that he loves, we just naturally start loving. And so we naturally start doing Anyway, this is where we're going to end up. We're going to go ahead and close here today. I challenge you to stick with this. I know life is busy, and I know that the semester can get going, and maybe you feel like you're, you're, you're slowing down or you're falling behind. Stick with this. That's the beauty of these podcasts, that you get to go at your own pace. But for, for most of us, we are going to head on to chapter 3. I take a little bit at a time and I unpack it and I I take notes and I'm constantly asking the Holy Spirit to to show me and to guide me. One of the things that my friend was texting this morning, we weren't even talking about this. We were talking about Job, but I told her, this just reminds me of what Jesus tells the Samaritan woman when he said, there comes a day where we will worship in spirit and truth. And I want to bring that to you today. Worshiping in spirit and truth, truth being God's word, spirit being spirit led. We have to connect the two. The two both have to be in place to worship God. And I think we see this with what he's trying to express to this Gentile and this Jewish church. They both have different backgrounds and different ways of coming to to understand who God is. And what he's saying is, Jewish people, you have the law, and so that's my covenant with you. You need to live by the law. Gentile people, while they don't have the history of the law, they need to know my heart. But this is going to be something discovered more through my Holy Spirit. And if the Jewish people could just live out the law with a loving, humble spirit, it would be a picture of these Gentile, that these Gentile people could look at and then transform their lives accordingly. I just encourage you this week to just be examining your own heart and asking the Holy Spirit what you can do, what can be transformed, what can look better. And for the biggest thing that um, some of me and my study partners were talking, when we see things in other people that you recognize, you just can't help it. You think, oh, that's, you know, for example, that's self-righteousness. We need to immediately turn to our own lives and say, oh, okay, God, I see that in them. You must be wanting to speak to me and show me some areas in my life that have self-righteousness. Help me weed that out. Anyway, I just want to say that you're constant encouragement. Thank you for your feedback. That just means the world to me. Again, we are a listener-supported, and I mean full-time now, listener-supported ministry. So if you would like to sow into that, you can visit us over at becomingabiblenerd.com and click on the giving button, and we would greatly appreciate it. We get we That means we get to continue to do this. I hope it blesses you. I know that you definitely bless us. We're building each other faith. We'll see you next week. Happy reading.